A long time ago, in a pantheon far, far away. <laughs> you can't do that. Welcome to this episode of History Told by Idiots. <laughs> yes. We hope that wherever you are, you are staying safe yes. and that you are listening to rules and following rules and washing your hands and wearing a mask when you go out into public. Bullcrap. <laughs> so, don't follow rules. Be like these idiots. <laughs> no, don't be like those people. You know, those people that decided to have spring break and party. And those people that go into the grocery stores and cough on things on purpose. Don't be like those people. Don't make my job harder than what it already is. But we hope that you are staying safe, that you're all healthy, that you are uh, making the most of your quarantine. Yes, absolutely. So that's what we're trying to do is make the most of our time together. I mean, it's not like we don't spend time together outside of quarantine, but this kind of forces us to, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, we went fishing today. We did go fishing today, and so I've always wanted a drone, and me and Tessa bought one, and so we've been taking some pretty awesome pictures of the mountains and stuff like that. We'll post them up and show y'all where we live. Yeah. Us hillbilly folk. Yeah, us hillbilly folk. So, speaking of us speaking being- Speaking uh, of hillbilly folk. Yeah, speaking of us. <laughs> we went down a rabbit hole, or at least I felt like I went down a rabbit hole, because tonight's episode- Kind of was, has been inspired by why well, Tessa makes love to her tea. It's coffee, thank you. <laughs> or coffee, my bad, coffee. Just a general interest in trying to learn Greek mythology. Oh yeah, we didn't really tell you. Like, as far as pantheons go, we are talking about Greek mythology tonight. We are tonight. talking about Greek mythology tonight. We figured that since the world is in such chaos right now, hey. uh, that we needed a little escape from our reality as it is at this moment. Yes. And instead we wanted to focus on something... Mythological, mythological for a change. So. We did. We kind of did the whole Norse pantheon thing, and and I think we need to revisit that sometime because I feel we did a good episode. We did a good episode. We did do a good episode. But I feel that we can do better now that we're now that we've been in this. We game could a make bit. it into a series. We can make us into like a series, a mythological series. But anyway, I'm glad Tessa mentioned chaos because this is where my story begins. Chaos, it's kind of like within the Christian, it was in the beginning there was darkness. You know, the creator spoke into the darkness and then there was light. Such with the Greek mythology standards, there was chaos. And then chaos begot so many children and then those children begot so many children and so forth and so forth. But the children that we are going to focus on right now is Guy which you obviously know who Guy is. Everybody knows who Guy is. Mother Earth. Mother Earth. And Uranus, which was the god of sky, the sky, and the light. They begot several children. Many, many different children. 
which were known to the Greeks as what? The Titans. The Titans. And the Titans is what really got me interested into this because you watch stuff like Disney Circulies and you play games like Smite and you play games like God of War. You read books like Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Percy Jackson and you, you hear about the Titans and you hear about what they've done and stuff. They were generally the personification of things. You know, it was the Greeks' way of trying to describe the infinite. You know, because each one of them were personifications of something. You know, like Atlas would become the personification of the, of the stars and navigation. Uh, Oceanus would become the seer of all things to do with the ocean. Cronus would become god of time. And he's important. With this, I want to focus on two of the children, Ray and Cronus. Ray was the mother of all gods, and with Cronus, they had six children. Can you name me the six children? Oh gosh, um, Zeus, mm-hmm. Hades, and mm-hmm. uh, Poseidon. Mm-hmm. You name the boys. Uh-huh. There's three boys, three girls. Uh, Hera. Hera. Uh, Demeter. Demeter. Hesta. 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 And it's and it's with these six children that I want to start my segment of the podcast with, um, because once Cronus and Ray had these children, Cronus was giving a prophecy. He was given a prophecy by his dad Uranus that his own children would rise up against him. And so, destroy, like, and kill him. And kill him. So, Cronus did what every other good elder god would do. He would castrate his own father with a scythe. And he would uh, he would overthrow him. But, you're, this is when Uranus would give the prophecy, one day your children would overthrow you. So, when Rael was starting to have children, Cronus would basically eat the children to keep this prophecy from happening. And so this is what happened with the first five. Oh, no. With the first five children. Ray, getting sick of it, disguises Zeus, when Zeus is born, as a rock and gives it to Cronus, which Cronus eats. Cronus is satisfied. Zeus then later grows up. He actually becomes the cupbearer of Cronus. Eventually seeks to take revenge on his father. So Zeus, as being the cupfire of his father, mixes one day a mixture of mustard and wine and gives Cronus for him to drink, which causes Cronus to vomit, to expel everything that was in him, including Zeus's five other brothers and sisters. Oh, so he ate them whole. He ate them whole. <laughs> well, I mean, you're talking about a titan. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about something that was the personification of time itself. So this would have been an astronomical being. And thus, the Titanomachy began. This is what was interesting with all with this, because I knew it as the Titan War, but I didn't know what its official Greek name was. No, I didn't either. And it was called the Titanomachy. It's, it was the War of the Titans. War, or War of the Olympians against the Titans. Zeus, of course, is the leader. He's the one with the Thunderbolts. He's the one with the Thunderbolts, <laughs> and I'm getting to that. The war would last for ten years according to Greek mythology. Uh, Zeus, at one point in the battle of the 10 years, Zeus realizes that things are not going the Olympians' way. 
So he ends up releasing what's called the Horkaton Curies from TARDIS. And I got to explain a little bit what TARDIS is because TARDIS was one of the primordials. And basically TARDIS is the lowest, lowest of hell. So you have Hades and you have below Hades, you have what's called TARDIS. It's a huge undead valley, pretty much just like a prison. And these creatures live there. Zeus releases them, and they are described as having 100 heads and 50 hands. They're creatures of incredible strength. Also, Zeus releases the Cyclopses. The first set of monsters, as the Titans were coming up, what would be known as Mount Olympus, started hurling boulders relentlessly at the Titans, while the Cyclopses were responsible for creating Zeus's Thunderbolts, which would then become Zeus's famous weapon. Mm-hmm. With these things all in hand, Zeus triumphs over the Titans. But what happened to the Titans afterwards? As punishment for causing the chaos that they caused in Zeus's new world, Zeus sends all the Titans chained up to the bowels of Tartarus. Except for a select few. They each got their own punishment in Tartarus, but the two that received the worst type of punishment were Atlas and Prometheus. Atlas is perceived as the bearer of the world. Yeah, he carries... It's the, the statue of the dude that has punish, the world on his back. His punishment was that he had to bear the heavens on his shoulders. And see, this is where the, this is where the mix-up happens. Because from that point on, you know, in Greek statues and stuff, it shows him bearing, bearing the world. But in reality, it was much worse. It was the heavens. For all eternity, Atlas was to bear the stars and the heavens. So thus, Atlas becomes the god of navigation to the seafarers of Greece. Is that why we call Atlases? That's why we call Atlases Atlases. Atlases. Mm-hmm. Because the original Greek sailors, which the Greece was very famous for their ability to navigate the stars and they charted most of what was then the known world and of course prometheus he brought the fire of knowledge to mankind to the to the new creature known as mankind and zeus punished him by chaining him to a rock this is the this is the gruesome one this is the gruesome one by by chaining him to a rock and every morning a crow would show up pick out prometheus liver and at the evening it would grow back, and then the cycle would repeat itself for all eternity. Or, later on in Greek mythology, as Heracles would save Prometheus as, as part of one of his trials. Zeus, Hades, and Poseidon drew sticks. What famous way to say, who's going to rule over what parts of this world, our new world, than to draw sticks? <laughs> draw stars. Draw, draw, to draw stars. Let's stars. draw s- <laughs> draw sticks. Let's draw straws for it. Yeah. If you get the longest one, you get to rule. If you here. get the longest one, you get to rule here. If you here. get the shortest one, you get you, the underworld. You get the underworlds, and if you get the middlest one, you rule the sea. Which is basically what happened. Zeus got the longest stick. He becomes the god of the sky. He becomes god of Mount Olympus. Hades gets the shaft. Becomes <laughs> the god of the underworlds. And it's very important to realize that he's not the god of death. That's Thanatos. That's another story. Hades was just the ruler of the underworld. Basically, he was the judge of the underworld. Mm -hmm. 
And then Poseidon was like, hey, look, I got the middle stick, so I'm going to take the bi- the trident and go to the sea. To the ocean! To the ocean. To which Poseidon, just like his older brother Zeus, begot many, 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 many creatures. <laughs> many children. Many children. Back up a few decades during the middle of the war, guys saw that the war was not going their way. She released a creature upon the earth called Typhon. Typhon. Have you ever heard of this creature named Typhon? No. One of the stories that came out of the Titanomachy. The description of Typhon. He was a massive fire-breathing dragon. Head to waist was like a human. His legs were like giant coiled snakes. He was the last enemy for Zeus to defeat before he could declare himself king. Can you just sit back for a second and imagine that in your head? I have more of a description for him. Well, the ancient Greek poets... Sorry that I did not write this guy's name down. Uh, as we have said before, we are history told by oh, idiots. No, I did. I, I wrote it down. His name's Hesiod. 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 Well, even still, that's a disclaimer for you. Yes. We are history told by idiots, idiots not Greek scholars. scholars. But he wrote, recorded the Titanomachy. He was one of them that actually sat down and wrote the stories out. But from his words... This is how he described Typhon. From his shoulders grew 100 snakes, a fearful dragon with dark, flickering tongue, and from under his brows, brow of his eyes, a marvelous head flashed fire, and fire burned from his head as he roared. And there were voices in all dreadful, in all different languages from his dreadful heads when uttered every kind of foul, unspeakable language. Wow. Typhon was the most deadliest of creatures. His power could only be matched by Zeus. He was known as the father of all monsters, and with his wife, Akkadian, gave birth to all mythical monsters. So all the cool mythical monsters that you read about, the Hydra, the Chimera, Cerberus, the Nemanian line that Hercules, Heracles uh-huh. fought. They came from Typhon. They came from Typhon. He was their daddy. Mm-hmm. Typhon bested Zeus at first by tearing out uh, Zeus's tendons from his body. Ow. But with the help of Hermes. That's brutal. Yes. <laughs> but with the help of Hermes, Zeus's tendons was recovered. Just rip his tendons out. Yes. And Zeus was able to overcome Typhon, his final obstacle, before he could be declared the king of Olympia. So, ended the Titanomachy and ushered in a new era of Pantheon worship. I thought it was super interesting. I learned a couple of things. That is really interesting. Uh, Especially when you go back and you read how many Titans that Guy and Uranus had. There were the Titanites, which were the boys, and there were six of those. And there was the daughters, and there were six of those. To make 12, and some of them were famous. You know, some of them are still stuff that we see today. Like one of them, her name literally is Famous. She represented the natural world order, law, and the divine right. And do you know where you see her today? She's the lady that has the blindfold on and the scales. She's, she is the statue that you usually see yeah, in the courthouse. in the courthouse. The blind justice. She wasn't literally blind, but... Her role was to treat everything equal. Equally. 
equally. She's probably one of the most famous ones other than Ray and Cronus. After the Totanomachy was over, the mm-hmm. Totan War, then it ushered in this new era, new pantheon of gods. Do you want to tell us about those gods? The gods literally were personifications of things that the Greeks couldn't understand. Demeter was the goddess of agriculture. Uh, Hades, obviously, was the underworld. Zeus was the god of the sky. Hera was the goddess of marriage. Poseidon, the god of the ocean. And Zeus was probably the most naughty (laughs) of all the the gods. That's a good word for it. Yeah, because... He was the naughtiest of gods. (laughs) If you saw the face that I made, I tried to come up with that. Oh, gosh. Uh, he was the naughtiest of gods. Uh, because almost every every story of Greek mythology that you would read past this, it's always with Zeus slaying with a mortal woman. <laughs> and this is the start of it, because Zeus ends up with his sister, with his sister Hera, who then has two of the more famous gods and goddesses: Athena, mm-hmm. which was the goddess of wisdom, uh, yeah, wisdom, wisdom, and Ares, who was the god of war. War. Also, they had Dionysus, who was the god of wine, Hermes, which was the messenger, Apollo, who was the god of music, and Artemis, who was the goddess of the hunt. Those were Zeus's immortal children. Zeus had mortal children with various mortal women. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just say that he was always on the prowl. He was always on the prowl. And his two most famous mortal children was Heracles Mm -hmm. and Perseus. Perseus. Who was the killer of Medusa. Zeus also had a child with Demeter, and that was Persephone. And I'll talk about Persephone in just a little bit. Yep. That is the short... Condensed version. Condensed That's version the condensed of this version. twisted family tree. We already talked about, we mentioned Aphrodite, didn't we? Mm-hmm. She was the goddess of love. So Aphrodite, and then Hephaestus. So Hephaestus is the son of Hera. It's kind of unclear whether he came to be... Uh, conceived by Hera and Zeus, or through Parthenogenesis, which is a big fancy word. (laughs) Basically, did he come from Zeus and Hera, or did he just... Was. Exist. (laughs) Or he just was. But he's kind of cool, though, because uh, Hephaestus is a master blacksmith and craftsman of the gods. So he's essentially the, the god of the forge and craftsmanship, invention, fire, and volcanoes oh that's cool. so he's really he hephaestus is cool he kind of has it all that's cool and, and I, i'm gonna make a side note because almost all like i said all good greek stories start off with zeus messing around and they also piss her off so yeah a lot of people <laughs> tend to make hera angry yes right? if you delve a little bit further into some of these you know greek gods and goddesses they're kind of cool For example, so Cronus and Rhea had Hestia first. She was, and she is the goddess of the hearth, fire, and the right ordering of domesticity. (laughs) And the family. Okay. (laughs) So you have like Demeter and then you have Aphrodite. Aphrodite is the goddess of love, passion, procreation, fertility, And Demeter is also a goddess of fertility, though perhaps in a different way, being with agriculture and stuff. But then you have Artemis down here, who is the daughter of the hunt, the wilderness, and virginity. (laughs) Hmm. I'm going to tell you some stories. All-time favorite love story. 
Well, that depends. What is your all-time favorite love story in Greek mythology? Uh, Hades and Persephone. Oh, I am. I'll save that one for last, since you like it. I figured that I would take us on a little romantic journey. <laughs> since we've learned about wow. our Greek gods and goddesses, I'll tell you some stories that go along with their mythologies. Yes. Does that sound good? Yes. And a side note about the Greek stories, much like biblical stories, Jesus spoke in parables. But each one of those parables meant something. Kind of was the same with Greek mythology stories. It was how they personified their gods as something. Their stories told how their world came to be. Sometimes they acted as morality tales. Yes, morality tales. So basically, they didn't just write stories for the heck of it. It wasn't just story for the sake of story. Usually their stories had a purpose Mm -hmm. or a meaning. Because the the one that I mentioned before tells how the seasons come. Don't don't, don't say. Don't say. It's a surprise. It's a surprise. (laughs) Don't steal my thunder. So as far as love stories go, you can't really uh, talk about Greek love stories without talking about Eros and Psyche. So I'll tell you a little bit about that. Eros was the son of Aphrodite and was the personification of intense love and desire. He's usually depicted like throwing arrows to people in order to hit their heart and make them fall in love. Who does that sound like? Who does that sound like? His Roman counterpart. Cupid. Cupid. (laughs) So Cupid. So really this is a story about Cupid, but in Greek mythology he's called Eros. Then we have Psyche, who was this beautiful, beautiful maiden, and she personifies the human soul. She's pretty much the symbol of the soul purified by passions and misfortunes. Eventually, she finds eternal joy and happiness, but I'm going to tell you how. Once upon a time, as all of the great stories go. So there was a king, and he had three beautiful, wonderful daughters. The youngest of these three daughters was Psyche. Even though her other two sisters were beautiful in their own right, Psyche was more beautiful than the two of them combined. She looked like a goddess among mortals. The fame of her beauty had been talked about and passed around from ear to ear and from village to village, and the whole kingdom eventually knew that Psyche was just this beautiful maiden. It was like unearthly beauty. Men kept coming to the palace to admire her and to try to win her favor. And eventually, she was so revered that people started worshipping her like she was a goddess, even though she was just a human. She was just so beautiful, they started to worship her. People would see her and used to say, Aphrodite is not even as pretty as Psyche is. Not even Aphrodite can compete with Psyche. Yeah. Here's the thing about um, about Greek gods and goddesses. They're jealous. They're jealous. So you can already tell that this story is not particularly going to have a, a nice turn, right? So the more people that were starting to know about Psyche and how beautiful she was, they would go and see her, they would worship her. The less people would remember our goddess of love and beauty, Aphrodite. Her own followers were like kind of turning away from her to go and admire this mortal woman. This did not sit well with her at all. The temples of Aphrodite were essentially abandoned. Her altars used to be covered with offerings and candles and coins and now it was just like cold ashes and the sculptors were no longer sculpting any likenesses of Aphrodite because everybody was obsessed with Psyche. Aphrodite could not handle it. She could not accept this situation that the humans would want to worship a mortal woman instead of the goddess 
like herself. So she decided to rectify this situation. So she goes to her son, Eros, and is like, okay, you need to use your power and make this little shameless girl fall in love with somebody that's hideously ugly, like the most vile, despicable creature that you've ever seen. Make her fall in love with that person because it will humiliate her. People will not think anything of her then and they will come back and worship me. Eros agreed to do it, but, but, there's always a but. Yes. <laughs> then he saw Saki for the first time. It was like one of his arrows had pierced his own heart. So as soon as he saw her, he fell in love with her. It was like love at first sight. So he could not bring himself to make her fall in love with somebody that didn't deserve her. Not a horrible creature. He just couldn't do it. But he also was scared to tell his mommy. <laughs> Yep. He was too scared to tell his mommy that he couldn't do it. Yep. So we go back to Psyche. So Psyche, like we talked about, is gorgeous and everybody is just obsessed with her. But she is so sad all the time because even though everybody worships her, nobody loves her. She doesn't have anybody special in her life. She can't fall in love with anybody. Nobody is really falling in love with her. And she just kind of wants to be seen and accepted, not for her beautiful face, but for the person that she is. But nobody can get past that extreme beauty that she has. Mm -hmm. So she just wants somebody to admire her for who she is. They were happy just to admire her beauty, not her actual self. Her two sisters were definitely not as pretty, not as, I guess you could say, seductive or whatever, <laughs> But even they were eventually married, and they had these two big lavish weddings. Each of them married a king. And then here's poor Psyche, who's the most beautiful girl on earth, but she was so lonely and sad because she was not loved. And it seemed to her that no man would want her as his wife, and this caused her very much anxiety and stress, and the same for her parents. Her father decided to uh, do what good daddies do, and... <laughs> was like, I'm going to take this into my own hands. And so he decides to go and consult the great Oracle of Delphi. He goes to the Oracle of Delphi, and he asks for advice on what to do to find a husband for Saki to make her happy. And the prophecy given back to him was pretty bad. <laughs> it was pretty bad. As it usually is. The Oracle said that Saki should dress in a black dress, she should be taken to the summit of a mountain and stay there all by herself. So dress in black, go to the top of this mountain, have everybody leave you, and then your husband uh, has already been assigned to you, and he's going to be a winged serpent, terrible and more powerful than the gods themselves. And he is going to come up and take Saki away to be his wife. So that's not a very pleasant prophecy. Take your beautiful daughter up to the top of the mountain and leave her there and this winged serpent is going to come and she's going to be the serpent bride. But the family was obviously in despair. Saki's friends were in despair. But she kind of had to do it now that it was prophesied. So she prepared herself for this hill. She dressed in black 
and she began to climb this hill. She knew that she was facing her death. So she climbed to the top of this hill thinking that this was going to be the end of her life. Her family went with her, kind of left her there like they were supposed to, and everybody cried and boohooed and didn't want to leave her there, but they had to. She was kind of resigned to her fate. They went back and locked themselves in the palace and prepared to mourn her forever, her passing, because that was what was going to happen. So she's on this hill. She's sitting there being quiet and waiting. It was nighttime. There was a breeze that came blowing through. Listen for the sound effects. So this breeze comes blowing through. It was the fresh wind of Zephyr, and it was like the mildest, most pleasant of winds. And then she felt that she was being raised up. Then all of a sudden she was kind of flying. She was being taken into the air, over the hills, to this soft meadow full of flowers. Something makes her forget her pain, and she goes to sleep. When she wakes up, there's like the sound of the clear stream, and there's like the birds are chirping, and it's beautiful, and the sunlight is breaking through the trees, and it's just glorious, right? She gets up. She hears the stream, she looks around, sees the beauty, and then she notices this magnificent castle. She was like, oh, this has to belong to a god. Look at the gold columns, look at the silver walls. The floors are inlaid with precious gems and stones, but it was completely silent. She was very suspicious, but she kind of walked around and looked for whoever it was that saved her. She couldn't see anyone, but then she heard these words. This house is for you. Come in. Don't be afraid. Take a bath and we will immediately honor you with a great dinner. So she goes and she does as the voice commands. She takes a bath and then she goes and she has this delicious dinner. She hears soft music all around her. She hears what sounds like a choir full of voices, but still she sees nobody. She was alone the whole day, but somehow she just knew that when night came, the man that was supposed to be her husband would come to her. She knew it. She was certain of it. She went to sleep. She could sense him close to her, and he was whispering sweetly in her ear, right? But she still couldn't see him. She was certain that he was not a monster, that he was who she had been waiting for her entire life, but she couldn't see who he was. So the following days were full of joy. Even though she couldn't see her husband, she knew she was loved, she knew she was safe, and she couldn't remember being happier ever. So day after day, though, it started to kind of wear on her that she was so happy and she loved her husband so much, but she couldn't see him. She eventually grew bored, as you would be, in a big castle all by yourself with nobody to talk to. And she started to miss her family. She knew that they must be mourning her still because everybody thought that she was going to be dead. And this wasn't really fair to her. So she asked her husband that night if she could bring her sisters up to the palace so she could check on her family and they could see that she was okay. And so her husband... At first, kind of refused, but then eventually he relented because she was so sad. And he told her, okay, I will allow your sisters to come here. But then he gave her a warning. Do not let them influence you. If they do, you will destroy our relationship and suffer a lot. So, you can see that something bad is going to happen already, right? Already you have that foresight. The girls are going to get together. <laughs> so, <laughs> 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 so the next day her sisters come. They're carried up by the wind like she was. 
and they were all happy to see each other. It was like a joyous reunion. But when they entered the palace, the two sisters were amazed by all of these magnificent treasures and the finery. But they kept asking, like, Psyche, yo, where's your husband at? And she was like, oh, you know, he's a young hunter. He's gone out into the woods to hunt our supper, to bring meat for our table. But they didn't believe her. <laughs> they didn't believe her at all. How could a simple hunter live in a castle like this with jewels inlaid in the floor? He has to be a prince or maybe he's a god. So they knew that compared to Saki, their own wealth and happiness were nothing at all. That's how they felt. She has more money, therefore she must be happier than we are. And that made them what? Jealous. Dun, dun, dun. That's a common theme in stories like this, because jealousy is bad, folks. Don't let jealousy destroy your lives. So they made this plan to hurt their sister on purpose. When they were saying goodbye to their sister, they said to Saki that her husband must be the awful snake that the Oracle of Delphi had told about. That's why he doesn't let you see him, because he knows that if you do, you'll be disgusted, and that you'll leave him forever. Oh, poor mm -hmm. Psyche, how can you ever sleep in the same bed with a creature like that? So, that put this little worm of doubt in her head, and she went on the next few days thinking about and pondering about those words. What if I am in love with this great winged serpent that the Oracle of Delphi was talking about? Why doesn't he let me see him? Why doesn't he come out during the day? What is his secret? Why doesn't he tell me anything? I mean, she was still in love with him, but she was starting to question everything she thought she knew. She basically decided that that night when her husband came to her, she was going to light a candle and see him to see if he was a snake. And if he was, she decided that she would kill him. Otherwise, she would blow the candle out and go to sleep, and nobody would be any the wiser. So, that night when her husband fell asleep, she lit the candle, and she approached the bed, and lo and behold, it is not a serpent with wings. It is Eros. And he is beautiful, like the most beautiful man. But she is so ashamed by her lack of trust in her husband, she falls down on her knees and she thanks the gods for her happiness. And she is like begging to be forgiven for doubting the word of her husband. But when she does this, she leans on him and a drop of oil falls from the candle onto the back of Eros. So he wakes up in pain and sees the lot. He looks at her, and then he's faced with the fact that Psyche distrusts him, and so he just leaves the bedroom without utter uttering a word. She ran after him, of course, yelling that you know she was sorry and that she was heartbroken, and he said, love cannot live without trust. Those were his last words before he flew off into the sky. And then she was like, oh my gosh, my husband was the god of love. Poor pitiful me. I didn't trust him. <laughs> right? <laughs> so she me. cried and cried for days. And then she decided that she'd do anything to gain his trust back. She didn't really know what else to do. So she went to the temple of Aphrodite, who I'm sure just loves her, right? This beautiful girl. <laughs> and she prays to the goddess 
she asked Aphrodite to speak to Eros on her behalf and persuade him to come back to her. But Aphrodite, being the wonderful, forgiving goddess of love that she is, was still jealous and wanted revenge. So she told Psyche that she needed to be completely sure that Psyche was the appropriate wife for her son. And this is another common theme. She gave her tasks to complete. How many? There are always three. (laughs) So she gave her three tasks to complete. And if she failed in even one of the tasks, Eros would be lost to her forever. So Psyche agreed, and Aphrodite led her up on this hill. She showed her a dune of different small seeds. There were like seeds of wheat and flowers, millets, uh, poppies. And she told her, I want you to separate these seeds by the afternoon. If you do not, I will never let you see Eros again. And she left. That seems pretty much impossible. She just sat down and was despaired because how on earth was she going to complete this task? And at that moment, there were a group of ants that were passing by and they saw her in such despair. They said to themselves, we feel mercy for this poor girl. Let's help her. So the ants all came together and they separated the seeds out for her. And, you know, ants are little sorting, carrying experts. So it didn't take them any time at all. Aphrodite comes back and she sees this. She's furious, but doesn't really let Saki know. Takes her on to the next task. So for her next task, Aphrodite says, Can you see those black waters descending from the hill? That is the river Estige, awful and abhorrent. Fill this bottle with its water. In some versions, they talk about the river. It's the river Styx. That I've heard that before too. Yeah. Go fill your, this bottle with water from the river Styx. Either way, so either from the river Styx or from this river, the Estige, and it's a waterfall that's coming off of this hill. And Psyche realizes once she goes up to the top of it that the rocks are very slippery and steep. There is no way that a human could fill that bottle with water. That only something with wings could dare try to do that. And so then, of course, an eagle swoops down from the sky, just like in The Lord of the Rings, with Gandalf on its back. And Gandalf grabs the water bottle. Sorry. The eagle grabs the water bottle. (laughs) The eagle grabs the bottle. Fills the bottle all the way to the brim, and it takes it back to her. Aphrodite sees this and basically Mm -hmm. says, someone helped you with this, because you couldn't have done it otherwise. It's impossible. Making her more mad. Making her madder and madder. And then she says, I'm going to give you one more chance to prove that you are determined to be with my son. you got to prove it to me. Somebody helped you with these first two tasks. This next one has to be by yourself. So she gives this little tiny box to Psyche. She is to take this box into the underworld and ask Persephone, who we're going to talk about in a second, who is the queen of the dead, to drain a little bit of her beauty into this box. So Psyche agrees. She's obedient as per usual. And she takes the path down into Hades. She crosses the the river, sticks to the other side. When she asks Persephone to drain just a little drop of her beauty into the box. Persephone was actually pretty glad to do it. Like she was, she was fine with it. So Psyche takes this little drop of her beauty and she goes 
back to Earth, and she gives Aphrodite the box. So you would think that Aphrodite would be like, oh, you truly do love my son. No, she is furious. She yelled at Psyche that she would never let her go and that she would always be her servant. At that moment, the gods, who were always watching and were watching this wrongdoing the entire time, decided to intervene finally on Psyche's behalf. So they sent Hermes, the messenger god, to tell Eros of all these misfortunes uh, Psyche was going through. That all these things that she was trying to do to get back to her husband. And this touched him and moved him and sort of healed that wound that her mistrust had wounded him with. So he left his room to find Psyche, who was exhausted by this point and just kind of chilling in his mother's garden in despair. So he forgave her, and from that moment on, Eros and Psyche lived happily together in their little lovely palace, which was always in full bloom with roses and other flowers, and Psyche eventually persuaded Eros to forgive his mother for what she had done. They got married. Zeus made Psyche immortal and allowed her to taste ambrosia, the drink of the gods. Eventually, men on Earth forgot all about her extreme beauty, and started worshipping Aphrodite again. So it was like, this is one of those tales where it's all right as rain. And what does this teach us? It's all about trust that significant other, trust the ones that you love, and don't betray that trust. And if you work hard enough for something, then maybe it'll pay off. Should we take a tiny, tiny break from talking about love? To tell you some interesting stories. You know how you were saying that Zeus would pretty much get down and dirty any way that he needed to, right? Yeah, right. So there's this lady named Leta, and Zeus really wanted to get with Leta. So he came up with this scheme in order to seduce her. He decided to turn himself into a swan and try to seduce her. I do not want to know. That does not appeal to me in the least, but, you know, I guess that she had her own things. So how does this one seduce a woman? We don't know, but apparently it happened. So he mates with her. She's a human and he's in swan form, right? But he mates with her and from this union comes a set of twins. Of course, they're born from eggs. (laughs) He was a swan when this went on. And one of those children is Helen of Troy. Huh! Yeah. I did not know that. Well, now you do. There's a bunch of weird, strange stories. For example, do you know how centaurs were made in Greek mythology? Uh, no. Okay, so there's this dude named Ixion, and he's in exile for certain crimes against his fellow humans. Zeus takes pity on him and invites him to come to Olympus as a guest, okay? Because Zeus doesn't make very good decisions ever. Once he's there, Ixion sees Hera, becomes obsessed with getting down and dirty with Hera. So, (laughs) to test his loyalty, Zeus creates Hera out of clouds, okay? So he creates Hera out of clouds, and Ixion gets down and dirty with cloud Hera and impregnates the clouds. 
And that's how we got centaurs. <laughs> Zeus was so angry that he turned Ixion into a giant flaming wheel. And his cloud offspring became centaurs. Okay, one more before I move on to Hades and Persephone, and then that's all we have for you. Dionysus. Do you know how Dionysus came into being? Dionysus was the god of wine and, and good times and has one of the strangest beginnings ever. Strange. Which, again, begins with Zeus. Porkin! <laughs> Thank you. So he meets this mortal princess and she becomes pregnant with his child. Hera, because she's, you know, jealous and Zeus can't keep it to himself, takes issue with this, as she usually did, and decided to ruin everything. So she sows seeds of doubt in the girl's mind. Eventually, Semele asks Zeus in full to know that he really existed and really loved her. Zeus had sworn that he would do anything for her and was kind of bound to it. So she saw Zeus in all of his glory, and that would kill any mortal who looked. She sees him in all of his glory. She's immediately engulfed in flame, and she dies. But the baby is still alive. So Zeus was determined to save the baby. He takes it out of the womb and puts it somewhere safe. Where does he put it, Josh? Sews it to his thigh. He puts her in his thigh, inside of his thigh. And that's where she gestates until it's time for her to be born. One more that's kind of like that is how Athena came into being. There was a woman named Metis, who Zeus desired. She heard a prophecy that her child would overthrow Zeus. He, too, got wind of this and did the only logical thing. He swallowed her and her unborn baby whole. Problem solved. So sometime later, Zeus begins to have this terrible headache. Hermes tells Hephaestus to take a wedge. Remember, he's the blacksmith. Take a wedge and your hammer, and break open Zeus's skull. Because that's how you cure a headache, right? What? Yes. So, he takes his hammer and his wedge and breaks open Zeus's skull, and when they do this, a fully grown female warrior springs out, completely dressed in armor. And that is how Athena, the goddess of wisdom and intellect, came to be. So the last story that I'm going to tell you about this evening... Uh, it's probably one of the more famous stories, I guess, more widely known. But I, I knew some about it, but not, you know, like the entirety of it. So even if you have heard it, just sit back and, you know, enjoy it again. Let Tessa's mellow voice. Let my mellow voice soothe you. <laughs> Once upon a time, Zeus, the king of the gods, was having an affair with the goddess of the harvest, Demeter. Because as we just said a second ago... He can't keep it where it's supposed to be. They conceived and had this beautiful goddess named Persephone. She was loved by everybody for her kindness and her beauty. She, Demeter, was very protective of Persephone and kept her kind of naive to the ways of the world and dressed her up like a child would be dressed, even way up into her adulthood. She meant to keep her innocent and virginal forever. That did not happen. (laughs) So one day, Hades is down chilling in the underworld, as he does because he is god of it. And he happens to glance up at the world above and notices Persephone playing with the group of nymphs in the fields. He lives in this underworld that's dark and isolated, and 
it was his job to judge the souls of the dead. So there was all this work that needed to be done. He was hardly ever able to just take a breather and look up and check on his family up above. The other gods had kind of grown to fear him, and the mortals hardly dared to utter his name. He was a just god, but he was lonely, and he carried out his duties over the centuries by himself. But when he saw Persephone, he was pretty much smitten instantly. She was beautiful, and she was tender towards the nymphs and kind. So he kind of decided to go back every now and then and just kind of watch her, observe her. And he felt his heart begin to soften. Eventually, he decided to go up to Olympus and ask Zeus for Persephone's hand in marriage. The only god. <laughs> yeah, he actually asked. He actually asked. And Zeus, who was her dad, agreed. He was very pleased because Hades was rich and stable and smart and powerful. So he gives his consent to the marriage. But Demeter, on the other hand... <laughs> Remember, like we said, wanted to keep her innocent and virginal forever. She would not have been happy. So Hades decides just to spirit her away, yep. and hopefully her mom won't notice. <laughs> so Persephone's in the fields alone one day when the ground splits open and outsprings this huge chariot being pulled by black horses. Hades leans over the side and scoops her up and then spirits her away before she can even scream. They plunge back down into the earth and then... They go to the underworld. So Demeter notices very quickly that Persephone is gone. She searches the fields in a panic, frantically, but can't find her. Eventually, she does find a farmer who witnessed the entirety of it. And Demeter gets angry, like grows totally livid, and vows that the ground would never produce crops until Persephone was returned. Meanwhile, down in the underworld... Persephone was kind of upset. She'd kind of been abducted from her home. Uh, Hades was kind to her, and he gave her all these gifts, but she missed her mother and her friends up above and, and, you know, in the world. Hades was really saddened by this, but he was also a very patient dude. I guess to be the god of the underworld, you have to be patient. He put Persephone a throne right next to his, and unlike the other gods, he allowed her equal rule alongside of him, which is awesome. You go Hades. He did not treat her like property, but like somebody that could rule by his side, somebody that he could eventually uh, come to know as a friend and a lover. Persephone suggested that another realm should be made for the best mortal souls to go. Hades made it for her. Did you know that? No. I didn't yeah, know that. it was called Elysium. Elysium. It was the underworld's heaven. Uh, Persephone felt conflicted, okay? Because she missed her mother, but she was falling in love with Hades. He was the only person that ever treated her like she was an adult, like she had valid opinions. I mean, and she did something monumental by getting him to create this Elysium in the underworld. So one morning, Persephone goes into the garden in the underworld, and she was offered a pomegranate by a gardener. Up until that point, she had never eaten anything in the underworld because... Like in mythology with the fairies, once you eat of it, either things happen to you or you can't leave. So she was so hungry that she ate six seeds from this pomegranate. So then Hermes shows up 
out of nowhere. And he finds Persephone and tells her that Demeter had caused the earth to completely freeze. There were no crops. Nothing would grow. People were starving and dying in droves. And the only thing that was going to stop Demeter from doing this was Persephone's return. She rather reluctantly agrees to go with Hermes to see her mother and father who were having it out. <laughs> like an all-out, knock-down, drag-out war between Zeus and Demeter because Zeus had like been like, yeah, take my daughter. You don't need her mother's permission. Go for it. <laughs> so Hermes takes her, and Persephone tries to convince Demeter that she wants to be with Hades, that she's fine, that he's kind to her, that he, they're falling in love with each other, but Demeter insists that she comes home, or that she would let every mortal on earth die from famine. There would be nothing that would grow. And then suddenly, from out of nowhere, comes Hades. He steps out of the shadows. He's holding a pomegranate in his hand that's partially eaten. And he, he says, Persephone has eaten the fruit of the underworld. She must return and rule it with me. Demeter kind of resumes her all-out tantrum on Zeus. And Zeus just kind of quietly considers what to do to get... Demeter off of his back and to see the king of all gods just shrinking back and back and <laughs> just kind of like what can I do to make this woman happy and this woman happy? So like he asks happy. He, he asks how many seeds that Persephone ate from the pomegranate and she tells him six. Zeus stands up and everybody goes silent and he says since Persephone has eaten six seeds of the pomegranate, I rule that she will spend six months of each year in the underworld with her husband and six months tending to the mortal fields with her mother. So neither Demeter nor Hades were completely happy with this agreement because they have to go six months without the person that they love most. But Zeus kind of decreed it to be so, and so that's how it went. So every year, Persephone would return to the fields and restore them with Demeter. And when the time came, Hades would come up out of the earth with his carriage and black horses and scoop her up and take her back down to her throne in the underworld. Every time that she left, Demeter would mourn and all of the vegetation would die. And each time Persephone returned, the earth would warm and become fertile again. And this, my friends, is how the Greeks would explain the Earth's seasons. They used the goddess Persephone's going away to represent fall and winter when everything dies out and grows cold, there's no warmth on the Earth. And then when Persephone returns to the Earth, we get springtime and summer, and we have, you know, the times of harvest when things will grow and flourish. Yep. So, like Josh said earlier, the Greeks would use... Uh, stories like this to explain the origin of things or how why things were the way that they were story. it is really it is a really good story so that's what we have for you tonight and so we hope that you kind of got to sit back and enjoy some stories with us and escape the craziness of what's going on outside remember like we said in the beginning wash your hands cover your cover your face be safe because we care about you yeah they should know by now where to find us all. <laughs> if you don't know where to find us on social media, well, sorry, just top in History Told by Idiots. Yes, on all of those things, right? We're at History Told by Idiots on Instagram, uh, History Told by Idiots on Facebook. 
We have a Patreon. If you want to go and subscribe to that, that's cool. If you don't, that's also cool. We're just glad that you're here. Yep. So uh, we'll see you much sooner than usual because um, we already have the next episode in the works. And I'm excited about it. It's about murder, which is one of my favorite things to talk about. And not about pissed off gods. Right. (laughs) So no babies being born from splitting headaches or thighs next time. So, okay, friends. Well, with that being said, um, we appreciate each of you for sticking by us while we've had isolation, quarantine, and computer problems that have delayed this. So we appreciate each of you. And with that being said... Love history. Love your libraries. And love yourself. And love each other, but from six feet apart. Yeah, but six feet apart.